You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc. I'm here with Lydie Klotz, who is a professor at the University of Virginia in engineering, architecture, and business. He is, as he says, an academic trespasser, which is my favorite type of <laughs> trespasser. And he's also the author of, of this book right here, Subtract, The Untapped Science of Less. Welcome, Lighty. Thanks, Greg. It's great to be here. So look, there's this huge literature on kind of biases and heuristics, right? Kahneman and Tversky are famous for having created this, but goes really back to Herb Simon, and even further to like philosophers, Aristotle and so forth. But we're cataloging a lot of these biases and we keep discovering new ones. And you've discovered one, which I guess you could think of it as the addition bias or the construction bias, this bias towards more as opposed to less. Now, of course, we're going to have to unpack what more versus less means because it's not always clear when you're doing something, whether it's more or less. But in fact, that ambiguity is part of the interesting issue because if we interpret something as less, it automatically invokes this kind of negativity valence. And if we convince people that what we're doing is more, then all of a sudden it becomes more attractive, more likely to be thought of and easier to sell. And so I guess as an economist, it seems obvious one of our most essential assumptions that we just start off with as like a definition almost of, of rationality is that more is better than less. <laughs> it's just sort of like, it's like a non-negotiable assumption in economics. And you describe your work with Legos. And so that's the apocryphal origin of this insight, but maybe tell us a little more about like how you discovered this and maybe why is it that we've got an engineer discovering this instead of a, a psychologist? You mentioned that engineers really need to take behavioral sciences seriously. And right now, if you go to an engineering school, you might take a class and I don't know, human factors that scratch right. it off the list, but you don't really dig too deep into, into kind of behavioral sciences. I love that intro. I'm so excited. This is just going to be an amazing conversation because we're going to be able to get into the details on some of these things instead of just, oh, what's subtracting? Well, let me start with the engineer, the role of an engineer in this and the basic research, the book's about more than the basic research, but the basic research that made the cover of nature, which has never happened to me before and likely will never happen again, um, was done with me and three psychologists. So it was definitely a collaboration. And I think what the psychologists would say and is that the reason it's cool research and different from what anybody's done in that area before is because it's a question that only an engineer would think to ask. And to me, as an engineer, this is like one of the, the most fundamental question, right? When we change something from how it is to how we want it to be, i.e. when we engineer, what's our first thought? And so it was this like really obvious question to me and I've got, yeah, there's the apocryphal is great. That's a perfect word for it, apocryphal Lego story with my son, but I've got emails that predate that to my behavioral scientist friends, like trying to describe this idea. And surely somebody has studied this and I don't want to run down a, a rabbit hole of research. If Tversky have already covered it or somebody else, I would have known if Kahneman and Tversky did likely, but, um, yeah, I've just always been curious about this. And I think the motivating factor and the reason that I go across disciplines, I think is because of the, these real world problems and you see like issues of sustainability, whether it's climate change or just human impact on 
other species. So many of these are a result of kind of unbridled adding or disproportionate adding to subtracting. And so um, that's where the question came from. And that's where the, like the noticing came from. It's like, it seems like we're not viewing subtraction as a way to solve problems. So yeah, I'll leave it there. So if you're an engineer, you're a civil engineer, but if you're a civil engineer or you're an architect, you're in the business of building, right? Um, right. Yeah. Now, now maybe you might have to tear something down in order to build something back up. That type of work is not amenable to, let's just build some massive building and then we'll pare it down. Right? In the way that writers, right. you mentioned Hemingway and the famous Pascal, you attributed to Mark Twain, but I think it was Pascal who said, I would have written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have time. Writers right. have known that, you know, you have to build up and then pair back. I think Raymond Carver is probably the poster boy for this. You didn't mention him, but he famously would submit these 400 page novels and his editor, this super famous editor that doesn't get enough attention. He really should be like considered a co-author. Like editors are never considered co-authors, but they probably should be to some degree. He would take that yeah. 400 page novel and reduce it down to like a 80 page short story. And that's what, yeah. that's how Raymond Carver became Raymond Carver. It was like the concision and what he left out. And you don't, and you talk about Michelangelo and seeing the angel in, in the block of marble. It wouldn't really, you know, if you built like a 40 story skyscraper and then said, I think I should whittle this thing down to 20 stories, you wouldn't get too many commissions. But <laughs> so. if you did get the commission, you'd have to, you'd have to charge more because it would be yeah, you'd be doing more work. So yeah, that's totally true. I think for engineers and architects, it's something that's got to happen in the mind so that you're not going to build the building first and then etch away at it. But you could conceive of a 40-story skyscraper and then say, hmm, it could, this could meet the needs of the people better if it was 20 stories or, or whatever the example is. And I'd also say that also that your point is just correct, right? This basic research showing that we overlook subtraction. There are tons of influences on this. Sometimes it's just because we straight overlook it. Sometimes it's because we think of it and there's no financial incentive to doing it. So that I think is probably the number one reason why architects and engineers wouldn't do it. At the same time, I think architects and engineers, we just do the bidding of the people in a lot of ways. So if somebody's going to pay us to create this thing that they've envisioned, we'll do it. And so once people start asking to have highways removed from the middle of their cities, then as is happening more with the infrastructure plan, then engineers will gladly pick up the check to do that. And so I think oftentimes these large scale decisions about how we design the world around us are actually made by the prevailing ideas in the minds of many, as opposed to just the professional designers. And I guess the other, the example, one example I use in the book that might be helpful here that I view as a subtractive design and the designer did too, was Maya Lin's Vietnam Veterans Memorial. And she said, she's got great descriptions of what she views the design as. And she said, it's a cut in the earth, which is a cut is a subtraction. And it's in this arena of big structures, which the mall in Washington, DC, you've got these huge monumental structures that the Vietnam Memorial is just, it stops you because it's different and because it's subtracted. So I do think that when you pull it off, there's a way to make it not profitable in that case, because I don't know, I'm sure Maya Lin got some financial reward from it, but not anymore because it was successful that she would have, if it wasn't successful, but 
that when you pull it off, it can be a better form of the built environment than the additive option. Yeah. There's more in sense of more space, more building material, but then there's also more, if we think in terms of more decoration or more embellishment and with respect to like more right. space, that, that does seem to be driven in part by economics. Here in Berkeley, we had a fire back in 1991 and a lot of the houses that were built in the 1920s were burned down. And in almost every plot that had a house that was destroyed, they rebuilt a new house and the new house was almost always bigger and would push as far out to the property boundaries as possible, almost to the point where you could peer into your neighbor's bathroom three feet away, right? And I don't think there was ever a case of anyone right. who built like a smaller house. And we've seen American houses get bigger and bigger, which is why it's very difficult to do kind of price comparisons across time periods. And certainly in New York, you're buying up air rights in order to push your real estate to the outer limits of what's permissible. So that's sort of an economic consideration. But then, the, you know, I think when you talk about removing stuff and you use this great example of the freeway on the Embarcadero in, in San Francisco, you know, there does seem to be some kind of endowment effect at work where people yeah. don't want to, they don't want to lose something, even if they're gaining something at the same time, the loss aversion kind of kicks in. But to what extent is loss aversion play a role in, in what you're describing? So the bias that we found is entirely different from loss aversion in that it's, this is people don't even think about subtracting as a way to solve the problem. And then loss aversion is once you, we are considering taking something away, those losses loom larger than gains, but to, for them to loom larger, you have to recognize them as, as losses. And so ours is before loss aversion in the thought process, but when you're trying to implement a subtraction in the real world, so many of these cases are, yeah, maybe somebody didn't think of it. And even if they did think of it, loss aversion can prevent a lot of these subtractions. And if, I would say that, so the Embarcadero freeway, this is the double-decker highway that blocked the waterfront in San Francisco 40 years. And now that it's been removed, it's one of the most visited places in the world. And it's so obvious you shouldn't have a double-decker highway there. But when they were going through the process of removing this, the city voted, residents voted two to one to keep it. And so when you're thinking about subtracting something, I think one thing that would kick in with loss aversion is if you're thinking about losing the highway, as opposed to gaining the waterfront, you're fighting an uphill battle because you're weighing the highway, that highway loss twice as much as you should. There's also, in addition to loss aversion, there's a pretty like rational decision-making shortcut that we would have when we're removing something, right? And that is, I don't fully understand this thing. It doesn't seem great, but who am I to kind of overturn that somebody who put it there must have thought a lot about it. And I mean, that's the case with a rule that's on the books, with a meeting you attend blindly every week with the highway. And some amount of that is good, but you do have to fight that when you subtract. Whereas when you add, you can, you don't have to understand the system. You don't have to understand the purpose of why everything's there. You can just add something on top of it. So that's, I think those loss aversion and that kind of conservatism bias, as you, as you called it, are really important factors after you think about subtracting and actually following through with it. Yeah. So in organizations, we talk a lot about organizational uh, sclerosis and the analogy is that the veins get clogged with you know, plaque and organizational, and you use an example of this, actually, you talked about the legislation and how it's like the city of Troy, we just keep adding, you know, layers and layers on, on top of the old regulation yeah. and the pressure builds to, you mentioned some legislative initiatives that would pair back some of the superfluous rules. 
And there's, I think there's a meme that goes around our website. It talks about all these crazy rules, like in Kentucky, you're not allowed to park your horse in front of a tavern or something. You know, I don't know. They've always weird in Virginia. Actually, when I was in right. Virginia, they had a rule, which was you couldn't drive barefoot. And I was like, what? I don't think anybody ever got a ticket for it, but I was, it was on the books. It was like, you can't drive barefoot. I remember that because I was thinking, oh shit, I got to get my shoes before I head out from the pool. But that's funny. I've driven barefoot before. That's like the early, there must've been like, it was always funny to me with texting and driving, right? This is, of course you shouldn't text and drive, but like, why do we need to have a law about that? Shouldn't it just be like, don't pay attention when you drive or something that would also cover the barefoot thing too. There's a famous book um, by Johann Huizinga. You could add this, I guess, to your story, but he talks about how the middle ages became so encrusted with meaning, like every color had a meaning, every number had a meaning and every star had a meaning and it became so like just burdensome to people because they just saw meaning in everything that when bacon came along and folks came along and just said, Hey, let's just wipe the whole slate clean. It was like, Oh wow. That's like the Marie Kondo of meaning. It's just like this. That's interesting. So they're trying to interpret everything they see is, Oh, this means something. Yeah. Every day had a, had suggest- a associated with it. And so like yeah. today's St. You know, Jose day, and you would just carry all this stuff around with you and organizations start to, they start developing all of these routines and rules and you got to check more and more boxes and you got to consult with more and more people and start adding more and more people to your meeting list and more and more to your email list. And and then ultimately kind of the organization grinds to a halt. So you got to, at some point you got to come in and just, so the argument there would be like, that's why new organizations come along and just wipe out the old ones rather than the old ones going through and doing this kind of neural pruning. So maybe that's another thing that I think you talk about, which is the process of learning. We tend to think of it as yeah. construction, but when we look at what happens in the brain, we often see that learning happens when we start pruning connections. So how can we? Yeah. I mean, constructivism is the term for how people learn, right? And it's basically you put the new things, the new knowledge you acquire, the new ideas you come the new experiences you have, the new ideas you learn about onto the mental models that are in your head, which basically works. And I think most of the time you want to add stuff, but it's the same as the physical world. The, the more stuff you add, the more opportunities there are to reevaluate what's in there and take some things away. And this, I'll make the connection to the pruning, but I think that's subconscious. And so like consciously we need to have that. I love this meaning example. I can't wait to go look at that because I like subconsciously, how do we go and rethink what's in our mental models and pull things away that are harmful? And that can often be, we're so focused on gaining new information, but the more influential changes are when you can think about, okay, this is a thing that I used to believe used to have my mental model constructed upon, but now I no longer believe it and I'm going to remove it and, you know, kind of improve the mental model that way. And it's hard. There's this whole history of, that I learned about doing research for the book, there's this whole history of misconceptions in science. And so the basic idea is, okay, students come into class and they think that the sun revolves around the earth. And so the first thing we need to do is clear up that misconception because you've got to start from a blank slate and it's just the sun and earth one is oversimplified that one you probably do just need to remove right away but it's really hard to remove these misconceptions and what the science educators have 
evolved to do is just adapt to how people actually learn, which is they modify their mental models to accommodate the new information. And so you know, a really simple example of that is my son and Santa Claus, and he's in the Santa Claus stage right now. He got Legos from Santa Claus for Christmas. And he walked up to me right after he got the Legos and he's like, how did this happen? I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, Santa can't make plastic. He just has like a wood shop for the elves. And I said, oh, oh, for Legos, I was proud of myself. I thought really quickly, I said, for Legos, Santa just works directly with Amazon to get the stuff there. And, and my son was, he was happy, right? He's like, okay, this, you know, it allows him to keep his beliefs. And we all do the same thing, right? When confronted with evidence that kind of conflicts with our beliefs, it's easier to modify our beliefs to fit the evidence in there. And I mean, I'll keep going because this for your audiences that will be interested in this. So the challenge is when you have a new piece of information, it's hard for it to compete with the information that's already in your head. And one of the ways to get by this, and you see this through the history of science, when there've been these big paradigm shifts is through analogies. And I think, I think it's Pascal who has a quote he gets credit for the, the Twain thing, but he also has a cool quote about analogies, calling them like his most precious insights or something like that. And, and so an analogy basically helps in this case where if you say, okay, the rotation of electrons around a nucleus, it looks a lot like the rotation of planets around each other. That if you already know about one of those things, now you've got this new information, which would be the planets say. But it's buttressed by this kind of previous piece of information that you already knew about, say the electrons in this case. And then now this new piece of information plus the electrons is fighting against the old wrong idea in your head and has a chance of overcoming it. So analogies, even if they're not necessarily scientifically accurate, <laughs> are powerful in helping buttress these new ideas to help you get rid of old ideas. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, it seems like it's impossible to get rid of an old interpretation until you have a new one. I use this example. In, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I use this example in my class where I show them the picture of the cow. You've probably seen this and a lot of people don't see anything. They just see like black and white dots. And then as soon as they see the cow, like right. you can't unsee it. And it's like once you have a pattern is frozen and then the only way you get rid of it is to see another pattern that's maybe a better interpretation. So the example you mentioned, like paradigm shifts, it seems like the old kind of earth-centric view of the universe, when there were all these anomalies accumulating, they would just add curly cues, right? Ptolemaic curly Perfect. cues and just the curly cues just started getting more and more crazy and crazy. And pretty soon your son is going to be like, wait, hold on. Amazon, if Amazon's doing everything, like what's Santa Claus doing? He's probably just sitting around watching TV. And then he's going to realize the whole jig is up, right? Yeah. That's coming soon. He's, he's slowly figuring that out with the logistical challenge. He's like, how many kids are there? There's seven, there's gotta be like 2 billion kids. And he's like, how many get, but then going back to your, uh, synaptic pruning thing, this, again, this is unconscious subtraction, but when we sleep, the unused connections in our brain get pruned, right. To leave room to strengthen the, the more used connections. Right. And so like, that's one reason that is one way that our brain kind of works to prioritize ideas. And I, I think that as a, an analogy, we can think about consciously doing that, right? I mean, if people who are listening to this are thoughtful people, they definitely spend time thinking about different things. And one of the things you could think about are what are the ideas that are like, I'm building my mental models upon that maybe I should subtract. And I think that could, that will uncover things. I know it has for me. I think a lot of times when people talk about debiasing and they usually describe a lot of the neuroscientists and cognitive scientists describe it as just adding another layer. You never 
stop with your system one thinking never stops. You add a system two on top to kind of override the system one. And so you're just adding layers and it seems super difficult to subtract them. And, and you talk about kind of time famine and how people will pack their schedules super full. I know I pack my lectures with too many slides and then I add too much content to my classes. And if you go on a vacation, you have too many things. And you say that, well, one way to get people to fix this problem is not to have them start scratching things off the list, but to add like a block in your calendar and call it, this is free time, right? It seems like, oh, okay, I'm consciously adding in free time. And then all of a sudden you get out, you overcome kind of the FOMO. Is that like just a way of outsmarting yourself? Yeah, I think so. But it's also a way of ensuring that you're actually subtracting something. Cause I think it's really easy to say like you, my friend, Ben, who's a co-author on the research and thinks about this more than anybody, probably other than me, uh, was, came to me bragging about, oh, I said no to a department meeting and I'm, I'm taking our research to heart. And it's like, well, that's great, Ben, but you didn't actually subtract something. You just didn't add. And so if, if the problem is that you have time famine, you've got more stuff than time to do it in no amount of not adding is going to fix that. You fundamentally have to subtract. So part of it is saying like forcing you to subtract. And then, yeah, the other huge part of it is putting in place a reminder. And then you talk about system one and system two, and how do we get better at this? I mean, I think well, a good theory for why this is happening, like why this has happened over time is we're just like disproportionately reminded of adding in our surroundings, right? A good subtraction by definition has disappeared. So if you want to have you want to think of subtraction more, we need to be reminded of the option more. And so then when we do subtract, which in this case, this is Ben's partner actually, who does this, she will take, when she takes something off her calendar, she leaves the block of time there to say this research time brought to you by the subtracted meeting that you were going to. And so it's, it also provides a reminder, right? So every time she sees that she also, not only does she have the time, but she's reminded that, hey, subtracting is one way to make things better. And so it helps with that cycle of thinking of it and then being reminded of it, that the adding has the benefit of that, but subtracting doesn't. In the book, you talk a bit about how this kind of addition bias, how much of it is biological, how much is hardwired and how much of it is cultural. And I think some people might suspect, oh yeah, this desire to acquire and the desire to kind of pack your life full of stuff. This is an artifact of American capitalism. And in particular, it's an artifact of the Instagram generation. Right. But I think you argue that this is pretty hardwired. And one of the examples that you talk about is hoarding and hoarding in its extreme form is, is obviously a psychological disorder, right? It's a form of addiction. And I've talked to a bunch of people about these sorts of addictions and they say that it is more likely to happen in people who experience subjectively some or objectively some kind of uh, scarcity, some kind of environmental, I don't know, variability, which then leads to stress. And then stress ignites this kind of acquisitiveness activity and hoarding. So how much, is that a rational response to the environment, do you think? Or why is it that we were hardwired to just go out and seek stuff? Yeah, it's just something that's helped us pass down our genes over time, not just us, but other species. And so acquiring food, for example, you know, if there's these cool studies of pack rats, you swipe their pack of nuts and they immediately refill the pack and you think, oh, that's obvious. Why wouldn't they do that? That's what I do when my pantry is bare. I reorder food from Instacart or whatever, but the pack rats aren't like 
planning and deliberating, uh, not that I know of anyway, uh, unless the research has changed there. This is an instinctive behavior to, okay, when I don't have the stuff, I need to make another pile of stuff. And that's something that acquisitiveness is rooted in the, this desire to have food, desire to have shelter too, right? I mean, you starting to one of the points I make about culture is that we haven't, or not points I make, but one of the things that I feel like I've learned about culture when I was doing the research for that part of the book is that surely there's some cultural differences. We didn't find any in our research, but all cultures have gotten where they are by adding stuff, heading roads and bridges and shelter and institutions. When you don't have those things, it makes sense to add them. And the, the cultures that didn't do that got overtaken by the cultures that did. And so like West or East or German or Japanese, if you're in one of the cultures that is dominant today, you're, you share that adding history culturally. So, I mean, there's this acquisitiveness and then this long history of doing it. There's also like a, another surprisingly biological one is competence. I knew that competence played a role here, right? You want to show that you're doing stuff. And when you add something, or this is, I always think of this in the organizational standpoint, right? When I go to a faculty meeting or when I respond quickly to an email, oftentimes it's just to show that I'm good at doing my job. And I thought, okay, well, I knew that people did that, but I didn't know how biological that was. We have this desire to show that we can interact with effectively with the world and bowerbirds build these ceremonial nests. And one of the reasons that they do that is to show that they can interact effectively with the world. They don't actually provide a shelter function, these nests. And then Albert Bandura extended this notion of competence from physical stuff to task completion. So that's another biological reason that we might add more than we subtract. And then of course, you know, you put the modern economic, modern being like post-World War II economic growth, and then also the Instagram generation. But I, it seems like those are as much symptom as cause of, of this kind of deep-rooted issue. Yeah. I used to have, I had tons of CDs and all that kind of stuff. And then it, my uh -huh. apartment burned down and I lost them all. And then I never recollected because I thought, oh, this stuff will all be available on streaming at some point. And it took years. It's finally starting to show up in the streaming. And I remember I used to have like a lot of suits when I lived on the East Coast. And now I just wear jeans every day. So my suits are gathering dust. But I, I'm, I got books everywhere. And I get a lot of abuse from my family and friends because they have to step over piles of books. And they, they accuse me of being like that guy you describe in Manhattan who they found his rotten corpse. The Collier brothers. Yeah. He was hoarding newspapers for his blind brother. So you having books is okay. Yeah. But uh, your office is, looks like Marie Kondo has come through your office. There are, so people talk about young people today. They say, oh, they're not interested in collecting stuff. They're interested in collecting experience. So it's just kind of another version of more. It's just moving the locus of the addition from one domain to another. I think so. Yeah. We have one of our, one of the studies we did in our research, uh, we gave people this itinerary to Washington, DC. And at this point in our research, we'd seen adding in so many cases that we're like, let's design a study where people have to subtract. And so we, we gave them this ridiculous travel itinerary to Washington, DC. There was, I think 12 or 14 different things they were doing over the course of a day. And these are big things like visit the Smithsonian, right? Go to the Lincoln Memorial. I think travel time between these things alone was like two and a half hours. And there's this drag and drop interface and people were told they could add and subtract and people added, overwhelmingly added to make this itinerary better. And so that, yeah, like just more experiences is better, right? We don't want to miss out. And so acquiring experiences would be 
you could see how acquiring experiences would fall into that same editing trap. I also think that obviously an experience might be, Hey, I want to like have a quiet day with my three-year-old and that's a different kind of experience. But it's when people talk about acquiring experiences, I think you're right. They're talking about, okay, I'm going to go to the Czech Republic. I'm going to do this whirlwind tour of Europe and check off all these things. And then I'm gonna, yeah. So I think at the core of your research, and I think the most powerful insight is that sometimes it just takes a prompt that will stimulate awareness of an alternative course of action. The experiment that I found most compelling, there's a couple that you, you mentioned. One is just about creating symmetry with a bunch of squares and you have a pattern. So let's create symmetry and you can either do it by converting some, your white to black or black to white. And most people will convert the white ones to black rather than converting black to white. You could say, well, all right, some people are adding black, some people are adding white, but that's not how people see it. People see it when you convert from white to black, that's considered adding. And when you convert from black to white, it's considered subtracting. So there's this kind of baked in conception of what is adding, what is subtracting. But then when you tell people, oh, by the way, you can go either way, then all of a sudden it changes the proportion, right? Yeah. And one of the ways, the simple ways that we could tell whether people thought they were adding and subtracting was just ask them afterwards whether they added or subtracted. And you get, it was really clear that everybody was interpreting it the same way that you would interpret it. We also had them practice before doing the grid tasks. And I, I imagine we'll return to this notion of what is adding or, well, let's just cover it now. I think whether it's adding or subtracting is in the mind of the beholder, right? So if you think you subtracted something, then you subtracted. If you think you added something, then you added. And I think that framing is really important as you talked about with loss aversion, right? If you view the bridges adding a waterfront, you're gonna approach it differently than if you're viewing this as subtracting the double-decker highway. But yeah, and then the grid pattern, so returning to the, the reminder, right? And so the, these grids were symmetrical. We asked people to make the grid symmetrical and they were balanced along two axes, an X and a Y axis. And the grid designs patterns we gave people were all different, but they all shared this thing where there were extraneous marks in one corner of the grid. And so you could solve the problem by adding to three corners of the grid to match the extraneous marks in the one, or you could subtract the extraneous marks. So it was objectively the right answer. And we told people to do it in as few clicks as possible. And once people recognized that, they would say, oh yeah, that's obviously right. And then, so there was a beautiful design, experimental design that Andy Hales, he's a professor at Mississippi now, but was, was here at UVA as a postdoc at the time came up with, and then you could manipulate that design. And so we're like, okay, well, what changes this? What changes the, the likelihood that people are going to add or subtract? And so at this point we have this theory that, okay, this is a default. This is, we're wired to do this. This is our kind of system one automatic thinking. And so if that's the case, then telling people, reminding people that they can add and subtract should help show that this is what's going on here. It's not that they're considering subtracting and then choosing against it. It's that they're not even considering it in the first place. So we gave people the reminder and it increased rates of subtraction, which is that's obvious, right? It's like, oh, of course, reminders increase rates of everything, anything, but it didn't increase rates of adding. So the reminder for adding was redundant with what people are already thinking. The reminder for subtracting was brought new ideas to mind. And so, yeah, how can we give ourselves reminders in the moment of making decisions to, to get better at subtracting? And I, I would say that listening to this podcast is certainly a reminder, you know, reading my book is a reminder. 
but also just taking some time to say, okay, where do I make important decisions and how do I bake in a reminder for myself to consider subtracting? So it's like when you're doing your to-do list for the week, do you also consider some stop doings when you're deciding maybe it's every time you buy something off of Amazon, you also think of something to take out of your house to keep the balance. So putting these reminders in place when you're thinking about subtraction can be a really helpful way to have more of your options at your disposal. Another thing you mentioned is that when cognitive load is increased, then you tend to right. see right, less subtraction because the default, when you have cognitive load, you typically move, you go to the default. And so it helps you. This is addition is the default. It seems to line up with the whole design thinking ethos, which is diverge and, and then converge. And when you're under cognitive load or you're under deadlines or whatever, you skip the diverge part and you just kind of go straight to some default solution. But diverging seems like, hey, expanding the choice set to some level, which means you need more, right? So you need more before you can do less. And I think you talk a little bit about this towards the end when you invoke Herb Simon and you talk about how it requires effort to presumably think up solutions, but then it requires effort to choose solutions and it requires effort to get to that point where you're satisficing, but then it requires additional effort to kind of move past it. And so to what extent is our not subtracting just laziness? Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's, I think that's an incredibly, perhaps the most important point from the research in the book is that like, it's more work. You used a beautiful example of the skyscraper before, right? If you want to create a whittled down skyscraper, that's more work. It's more steps to get to that. I and mean, it's this exact same thing cognitively, right? It's more steps. Our, our default, the easy thing to do is to add, and it's not that we can't subtract, but we have to think more. And I think that's where design thinking helps. It helps you go through these steps that forces you to think more, but there's this, it's really easy to think that less is going to be less work. And in the case, and sometimes it is right. Sometimes you just like, you don't have anything because you haven't acquired anything and you just, that's one form of less that's appropriate in some cases. But when we're talking about subtracting to make things better, by definition, you've already added and it is requiring more thought. It's requiring more action. It's requiring more effort. It's probably requiring more fighting against ingrained resistance in organizations and in society that's so used to adding. So yeah, that's incredibly important point. Mm -hmm. And so in the world of, of design and architecture, which is yeah. kind of your home turf, you talk about some fascinating examples. You talk about the city of, of Lexington, right? Where they expressed their river. We were talking about that here at Berkeley. We have a creek that runs underneath our stadium and underneath our business school and we considered exposing it and then we realized it was too expensive so we kind of left it in the underground culvert and it, when you walk through the proposal the word subtraction or reduction or limit none of those words were in the proposal which presumably is why the proposal got approved yeah but when i thought about the plan to, it's not a plan that simplifies anyway it's quite complicated so I think what a lot of people in design, when they think of simplification or reduction, they think about Pruitt-Igo, they think about Corbusier, they think about yeah. bare bones, simplicity, and people find beauty in that. But that's not what you're talking about, right? Yeah. And I, I've since learned that, I mean, some of that like modern architecture though, is the reason we haven't had those clean lines is because oftentimes the details or the not clean lines are actually there to, to cover up. They make it easier to build, but yeah, that's a little bit of a 
diversion. I think the, yeah, all these underground waterways that have been covered up by concrete are a perfect example of how, yeah, I think it requires more thought, more, I've already said more thought, but it introduces more complexity to subtract in those cases. And so the reason is because now you have to think about nature, which is way more complex than anything we can make. And so when you put the stream in a channel and put it under the business school and the parking lots, then you know what, how it's going to behave. When you reveal it, it's harder to understand how it behaves and it got different considerations, different maintenance that has to be done. Army Corps of Engineers is never going to propose like less concrete. So they're going to, if, if the river is yeah. overflowing, you got to just add more concrete, right? You're not going to say, Hey, let's just carve a hole in the concrete, let the water go into the swamp or whatever. That was not the default way of thinking for many years. For many years. Yeah. I mean, John McPhee's got an amazing book on the control of nature that has some great army Corps of engineers examples. And that's like civil engineering for a long time has been like, how do you make nature predictable? I do think that's swinging back. Just the, the fact that your business schools, you've got a creek that you're considering revealing. And I wouldn't be surprised if the army Corps of engineer has projects along these lines. The, the landscape architect that I talk about in the book, Kate Orff has, she did this project in Lexington that. A, a huge piece of it was revealing the town branch, uh, Creek that ran through their city, but she's got projects all over and Don Danby out in your area is doing some really amazing work along these lines. So people are realizing that it does introduce more complexity, but the benefits in this case, in terms of restoring the watersheds to do what they were meant to do, have all kinds of environmental benefits with direct implications for humans, but it is a, a very fair point that in that case, subtracting something kind of increases the overall complexity of the system. You mentioned an example from, you were a soccer player uh, for many years. Yeah. And you mentioned this example of where your team was kind of stuck in a rut and you um, decided to remove two players from the field and play with nine players. And then when you went back to 11, your performance had been improved. And, and I love that example. And I was trying to think of other you know, ways you could leverage the insight from that example. I usually think about it from the perspective of cooking, right? So I, I cook a lot and you mentioned you have a lot of cooking metaphors for me. Oftentimes, like if I constrain the, the number of ingredients that I have available and it's, it's almost like it's a fun challenge. You show up at somebody's house and they have an empty refrigerator and you're like, okay, well, I got to make them dinner. What do I do? Right. And it, you discover things you never would have discovered that way. Yeah. Forcing those constraints is great. I think like understanding the science behind this, it might be a, a really good way. And it sounds like science. It is science, but it, that's not super intimidating here. It's complex systems stuff. And it, there's this paradox and it's funny that it's even called a paradox, but this mathematician brace. And what he finds is that when you modify, when you subtract something from a complex system, Sometimes it makes the overall performance of the system better. And what we assume with a complex system, whether it's like a city or even an ecosystem or a recipe is that it's functioning at this, this optimal state. And really what it's functioning at is like a satisfied equilibrium, right? So it's like people found a basically good enough way to drive around the city and it's working for everybody. And so we just accept it as it is. And what you do when you subtract something from that system, or when you add something to that system is you basically shake up the complex system and then it settles down at some other kind of unoptimal equilibrium and it could be better and it could be worse. And this paradox that Brace found, it shows up in cities, right? They'll, for example, removing the highway from or the Embarcadero freeway in San Francisco didn't necessarily make 
traffic worse. Same in cities around the world. And, and surely sometimes it does make traffic worse, but it doesn't always make traffic worse. And that's because this thing wasn't operating at a perfect optimal state in the first place. And then Kurt Kafka, who's um, a psychologist, who's Gestalt psychologist, who they took a very systems-oriented view of psychology. He's the originator of that famous sports cliche, like the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And, and Kafka would get so mad about this because it wasn't his original quote. He said that, that the whole is something else than the sum of its parts. And so the whole can be greater and the whole can be, be less than the sum of its parts. And so what, going back to the soccer example, what happened was you took the two players out. It shook us out of our equilibrium. The way that we were performing changed drastically because it had to. And then obviously before the next game, we added the two players back in so that we had enough, but we were, our system had been shaken out of its stupor and was performing better. So it's uh, something to think about in, in when you're taking parts away from complex systems. Yeah, I remember when um, I took a painting class when I was an undergraduate and we had five classes where we were supposed to work on a painting. So it was like 15 hours to work on this painting. And I was like nine hours into this painting and it just wasn't, it looked terrible. And my instructor came over and he, he said, all right, here's what we're going to do. He took a palette knife and he just scraped every, scraped the entire painting, removed nine hours of my labor. And I was like, so pissed. I was like, what are you doing? Like I spent nine hours on that. And then within an hour, I had something that was better than what I had before, but it was really, it really pissed me off that all I wanted to do was keep adding and adding and improving by adding. And the idea of like wiping the slate clean was just heretical, but it was super important lesson, I think for me. Yeah. I mean, that's the full circle to your editor example, right? It's like he basically edited your painting for you. It's harder to subtract your own stuff. It seems because you have this interest in what you've created and you know, the work that went into it, you want to show competence, right? If you've got a blank canvas, it looks like you haven't been doing anything for nine hours, but yet I think about this a lot in writing. I waste so much time trying to polish something that should just be discarded. And you feel like you're discarding it. You've mentioned being back to a better painting after an hour because you've still got all the, the knowledge that you gained. <laughs> yeah, but it's hard. I interviewed this guy from Tuck in Dartmouth. He wrote a book called The Three Box Problem, right? And he, he said that a lot of companies, they think about explore versus exploit, right? So they've got one part of the business that is just consolidating what it does well and rinse, wash, repeat. And it's got this other part of the company that's out there exploring for new ideas and so forth. And he says that every company needs a, a third kind of part of the organization whose job is to destroy. And he actually is he's Hindu. And, and so he uses like the three gods to, and Kali okay. is the God of the third box. And you mentioned Kali and you said that Kali is this goddess of destruction, but she's also like this goddess of motherhood and, and love and so forth. And you say that this is not, maybe this isn't a paradox. Maybe this is, this makes sense. Yeah, it's funny because you think God of Destruction and Kali's often depicted. She's the Hot Lips Rolling Stones logo is derived from Kali. So she's depicted with these like lush, sexy lips, but she's also sitting there holding like severed bloody heads because from some of the destruction that she's done. And yeah, so you've got these two ideas that you're being forced to hold closely together with Kali's like destruction and all the positive things that she's doing. And I think the idea that I guess the one thing I do think is relevant from the cultural science and, you know, history is that there certainly are cultures that are better at 
not having binary thinking and not and and you know binary thinking is really helpful when you can find two two ideas that are in opposition to each other and then you can say okay well if x is true then y is not true and that helps advance your thinking but it's not helpful when the ideas aren't actually <laughs> in in conflict with each other and when how we're talking about adding and subtracting here it's they're complementary ways to make change. And so I think that if you can think of, uh, when you think of adding, if you then think, oh, adding helped in this situation, maybe I should try subtracting that you'd be a, a long way to fixing this oversight. And so I, mean, I think Kali is a really nice example of, especially in the Hindu tradition of you can hold these seemingly conflicting ideas together. But I didn't know that he used that example in his book as one of the three gods. And that's, that's really neat. So. Look, you're in three different kind of schools down there, University of Virginia, and um, you could probably add another school if you wanted to and just keep adding. And multidisciplinary research in many ways is a product of adding kind of tools to your toolbox. And you know, I teach uh, business students and I often think of myself as teaching, you know, just giving them this like super comprehensive box of tools and kind of the more tools they have, the more competent they'll be out there in the, in the world. But then I oftentimes think of myself as giving them a compression algorithm. I'm giving them a way of ingesting massive amounts of information and reducing them down to something that's simpler, like applying Occam's razor to all this stuff. To what extent? How do you do that part? Sorry to interrupt, but how do you, because I think that's such an essential 21st century information age skill. So I'm just really curious how you do that. I would like nothing more than my students could leave my class with that compression algorithm. I think so that like the more, in a way, the more models you have, right, the more data you can pack in because you can immediately identify the essence of a situation and then you can abstract from all of the detail, right? You know, the minute the information comes in, you can pare down the data and figure out what the essence of it is. So in a way, it's like adding more models means that you have, you don't need as much data. As it comes in, you can slot it in different places. But when we think about interdisciplinary education, this seems like, uh, you know, you have to just add more and more. I was, I was talking to another, another guy, Larry Keeley, and he said, well, if you want to succeed now, you need design, you need business and you need engineering. And so you basically need 12 years of education. Now, hold on a second. Right? No, who's going who's to spend 12 <laughs> years? The whole idea of the Adam Smith is, hey, just do this one thing, turn the crank, and that's how we improve things. How can we think of, you know, is interdisciplinary research more complicated or is it also kind of a way of, of simplifying things. Uh, there's definitely more of that startup time. There's just no question about that. I mean, you've got to understand multiple disciplines and you've got to at least be able to have the models for them. And yeah, I just think it is, I think it, it, that it is more work, more, more startup time before you start seeing the fruits of your labor. Certainly, of course, the other side of that, which is no secret to listeners of your show is that the payoffs are bigger because. Not a lot of people have done it, right? That there's untapped potential at those intersections. So there is that reward there, but it is challenging. I do think that this is where collaboration gets really important. And I've got amazing collaborators in psychology, not just on this subtracting research, but in other areas of research. And I've just learned so much from them. And I, I had to, I mean, you have to do the work to understand the, the fundamentals, but then once you've done that work, you find the right collaborators and you can speak the languages, then it's just, you just start seeing the potential. I'll also say that once you have a little bit of success, it's, you see the potential and it's really easy to keep going. Right. But it is, 
there is this kind of, okay, I'm going in this direction and it's unknown. And I feel like that unknown direction is maybe a longer time than for disciplinary research. And also say for your, you know, the 12 years of education question, I think that's totally true, but it also, education doesn't just have to happen at school. I think that's one of the amazing things with interdisciplinary research and the, like the type of thing that you're doing, right? It's like, there's all these ways to, to get information and to continue learning. I mean, if anything, your education can take off after school because there's not some professor telling you what the thing is that you have to learn. You get to pick and, you know, you, you need, I think the professors do a good job of helping direct people to the most important stuff, but there is a amazing amount of freedom that you get. And one thing that I thought after graduating is, okay, now I'm done with the education part and I'm going into the part where I just make the world a better place by applying my education. And it's much more now that you've just got the first steps to learning and now you can go into the world and learn and try to make it better while you're learning. And so, yeah, I do, I do think that the answer to doing interdisciplinary research or interdisciplinary work is not to make education three times as long if you're spanning three disciplines, but yeah, sorry, I don't have a, a surefire way, a better answer than it's hard, but, um, it's hard, but hard is good. Mm -hmm. Well, Lighty, thank you so much for joining me. Um, the book is called subtract. So, you know, add this to, to your reading list, um, but, you know, be sure to knock something out, <laughs> you know, cross something else yeah. off uh, when you add this to your reading list. Thanks so much. Adding is good too. I mean, it's add and subtract. And so let's break that binary thinking. Yeah. Thanks, Greg. This was awesome. Really fun to talk about. Okay. See you again soon. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.